Welcome to the Inexplicable Thoughts Podcast. This is your host, Franklin. Today, I'm joined by my co-host for the day, Francis. How you doing, Francis? Doing good, Franklin. How, you, how are you? Not too bad. I'm, I'm enjoying this uh, sunny weather that we have, we're having right now. I'm hoping it'll continue to pick up and get warmer over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. How was your weekend? It was good. It was good. Um, hit the gym. It was a low-key weekend for me. I'm watching Snowfall right now uh, on Hulu, and it's, take, it's okay. taking up most of my time. <laughs> Uh, so it was a local weekend for me. I hit the gym and watch Snowfall, basically. I think I'm going to start that show soon. Everyone's been talking about it, and I've, I've I've done my best to avoid some of the fat shows, but some of the reviews are just too high praise for me not to you know hop on the wave and, and start tapping into it. Yeah. But uh, everyone says to everyone warns me that there's a scene in the first or second season that you kind of just got to push through. Um, and so that's <laughs> something that I'm. I'm <laughs> <laughs> That's a fact. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. Actually, the main, char- uh, the main character's name is Franklin. Coincidentally, yeah, yeah. Every, I, I ran into someone last night, um, and they uh, asked me what my name is. And then when I told them, they're like, "You ever watch the show Snowfall?" And I was like, "Don't even get me started." <laughs> oh my um, goodness. <laughs> Uh, but I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive into things. It's something that you know I've been thinking about a lot recently, and I have a lot of friends that are similar, and, and they're moving in that direction. But today we'll be talking about home ownership and a lot about real estate. And you know, you're one of the most experienced people I know in that field right now on the local front. You know, especially being in my age range. Um, so I just wanted to you know give you a, give you the opportunity to give a brief background on who you are and you know how active you are in the real estate space. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, as you said, my name is Francis. Uh, graduated from undergrad in 2011. Uh, pursued my master's in civil engineering and construction management at Iowa State. Got done in 2013. Um, moved around a little bit. Uh, lived in D.C. for five years, and now I live in Chicago for it's been about two and a half years now. Um, as far as real estate goes, I purchased more than a million dollars worth of real estate, and actually, that was that was done in the span of like. 19 months so it was like it was it was it was it it just happened really quickly um and now i own and operate that uh those kind of assets um and i did it through what we call house hacking basically purchasing owner occupant uh multi-family residential units and living in one unit and renting out the others um so in in the meanwhile uh you know i worked full-time as an engineer um but I also got my real estate license back in the D.C. area, so I was doing that part-time. Uh, but now, then I'm thinking about getting my real estate license here in Chicago, so we'll see. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, that's a brief info. Okay. I actually didn't know you were up to a million. That's a, that's a quick ramp up in size and scale. Yeah. Um, can, you, can, you, can you break that down and, and, and just give us your, your, your approach to purchasing and how you handle management? Um, just give us like the full intro to, you know, your first steps in regards to purchasing properties. Yeah. So <clears throat> the as far as management goes, I do all the management myself. Um, I use an app called or a website called Cozy. And that's a free property management software that allows you to collect rent, to update maintenance requests. Um, and then I kind of just manage it by hiring people out, basically. You know, I'm not a very handy person. Like that's one thing that I really want to stress today is that a lot of people think if you buy real estate, you have to be very handy. Sure, you can. You know that would definitely help you if you are. Um, but you know, I, I take the bullet and and hire a professional to come do it. 
uh, even if that costs me a little bit more money. Um, so yeah, so as far as how I was able to do that, um, the first property, it actually, it took, it was 18 months between my first purchase and my second purchase, but it took me about, let's say a year and a half to buy my first purchase. Uh, because it's like, it's tough, man, to do something that you've never done. It's, it's really tough to get there. So it started with budgeting, um, like pretty significantly, you know, whether that's reducing my costs and putting money aside. And, um, and then I was able to buy a single family actually partnered with, um, partnered with family on that. I'm fortunate, you know, that family I was interested in investing at the time. And that was a single family just outside the DC area. Um, and, uh, basically in the DC area, rent is so expensive. People rent out rooms in single family homes. So I was able to rent out, let's see, right now I'm renting out five different rooms in the house. Um, and that's, you know, on average, each tenant is paying, let's call it like $800 a month, um, with that. So I bought the house with the intent to live in it. I lived in it and then I moved out and that's completely legal. Um, you know, as long as you do it within a certain period of time. Um, and then <clears throat> I moved out to Chicago and purchased a multifamily out here, which is, it's a, uh, four unit, but has what they call non-conforming units. So it has, um, living space in the attic areas that we redid and made, made livable. Um, so the first property was, a, I purchased about $450,000 and the property out here was $675,000. Okay. That's awesome. So in regards to assessing, you know, your target markets, do you, were you looking for houses, condos? I know you mentioned multifamily, non-conforming units. You know, what was your general approach to assessing the market and getting familiar with, you know, what kind of building you were looking for to create cash flow? Yeah, that's a good question. So in every market, um, different types of buildings, you know, it, it depends really on the market that you're in as far as appealing to different types of buildings. What I found was that in the D.C. area, like multifamilies were so hot. Like I said, I looked for 18 months and I had access to the MLS, right? And I still could not, I put in so many offers. I could not get it. I was getting outbid every time. There's some properties you put in an offer in and it's like 10 other people put in an offer in and that property is only on, on the market for like a day. It was crazy out there. So what I decided to do was go with the single family route. Like when I ran the numbers with condos, the numbers didn't really, for what you pay in taxes, what you pay in condo fee associations, the numbers didn't make sense for rental. If putting down, putting low down payments, like, yeah. So what I was going for is what I always go for for my properties is three, three and a half to five percent down. Um, so the numbers didn't make sense for the condos in DC. So that's when I looked at the house and um, we was able to go with the lower down payment option there. It was that that was three and a half percent. So basically, uh, when when you look at markets too, uh, I know you mentioned that in your question. Um, I would look. I'm looking to rent to people that are around my age and that are, around, you know, kind of in my position in life. You know, graduated college, working full time. Uh, maybe they don't want to own at this particular time. Um, close to a metro, close to some kind of attraction, like you know, I call it maybe. Uh, I don't know, close to a, a basketball arena or, you know, close to something that's uh, close to a hospital, close to something that's going to um, pull tenants. Um, in, in my case, I, you know, property here in Chicago is in like Logan Square, Avondale uh, market. And we would try to be within 10 minutes of 
10 minute walk of the metro and we were we were just able to achieve that uh, so we I, I think in chicago for, for those people familiar with it it's like there's a growth along the, the blue line heading from downtown to o'hare basically and yeah. you know and it's 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 going to be like that um you're seeing the, the chicago area is pumping money into these areas and you know that that's kind of what we're looking for. okay so one of the things I know you briefly touched on um, during your intro was about partnering on your first property versus going solo on your second one. You know, how can you, how do you break that down? How do you assess that? You know, do you have any recommendations towards the listeners on how to approach that, especially with like partnership agreements and handling uh, uh, just, you know, f- cash flow splits and uh, things along those lines? Yeah, for sure. That's, so that's really important. Like even even if you're doing a deal with your family, and actually on the second one, I, I partnered too um, with uh, you know with with family as well. But um, it's it's really important um, to really spell out a like you said, cash flow split. Um, B everybody's role within running this business because being a landlord is operating a business. You know, to be to be frank, um, no pun intended. Um, so, you know, it's really important that, you know, I, we, we even, what we did was we gave the agreement to a lawyer to actually review. Um, now, you know, you may not have the means, people may not have the means to do that. And I get that, but we wanted to make sure it was pretty, it was pretty tight. Um, and so, and we, we sit down and we review it once every year just to see, you know, when we first started, maybe, you know, our impression of what was going to happen wasn't necessarily that. So. We review it every year to make sure that you know everybody's holding up their end of the deal. With that being said, the first property, um, the, my family members were more like investors, so I did all the operating. I, I'm doing everything by myself. Um, and then the second one, uh, family members more. We kind of split the responsibilities fifty fifty as far as um, I do more of the operation stuff, and uh, my wife does more of um, the financing. Okay. So one of the biggest questions I always ask in regards to, you know, owning a property and, and, and assessing the value of a property, you know, the, the first thing you think about is debt. And so for me, understanding what kind of down payment I can handle versus um, what would blow my budget, how do, you, how do you assess that? What are the best options or vehicles for doing so? You know, we talk about FHAs, we talk about 3% versus 5% versus 10%. Yeah. Um, how do you approach that? And how do you, how do you recommend our, our listeners to assess you know what their best options are so everybody's different um but for me i'm all about cash on cash return like that's the metric that i look at i look at versus i like let's say we put down three thirty thousand dollars for a down payment how much am i making monthly or annually compared to that thirty thousand dollars and i always aim for ten percent so if you put down more money obviously the cash on cash return is going to be less Right. Yeah. Um, everybody's like I said, everybody's different with that regard. Some people would rather have a large down payment and, uh, you know, make smaller monthly payments. The way I look at it, as long as the rent is covering my mortgage, as long as other people's checks are covering my biggest debt, then I'm good regardless. You know what I mean? So, yeah, if you want to go with 10 percent, cool, but. I'm I'm trying to go, I'm trying to get into this property, and you have to look at opportunity cost too, right? You have to weigh opportunity cost. So if if you put down five percent, right, and um, you use that other five percent to say invest in stock, 
Now, now you're mitigating your risks, you know? So I'm always, I'm always of the opinion of less money down, um, spread your risks and, and go from there. So in, in regards to that, I know that, you know, as you said, that it's all about, you know, covering your mortgage with your rent income and, and trying to get as much cash flow as possible. I think that that's important, but I also like to take into consideration the, the thought of insurance included in your mortgage payment. Absolutely. So how do you how do you approach that? Are you trying to avoid that insurance that the bank sort of requires on your property when you don't have a high enough down payment or, or how do you approach that? No, oh, even like the insurance is not that much. Like, let's see, for for my for the property in Maryland, it's about it's less than two hundred dollars a month. So that insurance, what Frank was referring to for the listeners that may not know, is if you put less than twenty percent down, you do pay an extra insurance. Um, you know, basically, and so for like two hundred dollars a month to me over the course of a thirty-year mortgage, it's like I can eat that cost. You know what I mean? Yeah, and like. And when you run the numbers too, like the difference between putting 5% down and like, let's say 8% down, like your mortgage is not going to change that much. Like I think it's an interesting, it's like when, when, when I run the numbers, that's something I assess too. And, and you'll see that, you know, I'd rather have the cash. That cash means more to me than it would to be to save, you know, a hundred or $200 a month. Yeah. You know. Present earnings versus future earnings conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, and when you're assessing your properties, I know that there's been a, a huge debate right now, especially with COVID, you know, almost decimating interest rates. Yeah. The conversation of 30 year payments versus 15 year mortgages. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And I'll, I'll kind of respond back to it because I've, I've had a very heated conversation with some friends recently about how to approach that and how to view that. So, in, like you said, in this type of market, to me, there's no point in doing a 15-year mortgage. Like, th- like 30, the 30-year mortgage and the 15-year mortgage are going to be very close, if, if you're yeah. going to be honest. Like, because the interest rates are so low. Now, if, yeah. if, they, if they get higher, absolutely, you know, go, go, for that, go for that 15-year mortgage and go from there. But the interest rates are so low. I've had this conversation with uh, lenders as well. So, like, you know, it's not, there's no purpose of doing a 15-year loan right now okay i've I've had some uh, some interesting conversations i've seen a lot of people you know through these you know real estate forums on instagram facebook and other social media platforms uh discuss the fact that they would recommend using 15-year vehicles um especially as you said during situations where the interest rates spiked significantly my whole point about that actually came from someone who actually tweeted about it and i agreed it, it, it makes more sense to almost default to a 30 year because you can always increase your monthly payments Absolutely. towards your mortgage. Whereas if you take on a 15 year yeah. uh, mortgage, you can never go down in that, that, uh, that amount and you can never go down in that frequency. Yeah. Um, and so if you, you know, get a higher influx of cash flow for that month and you have a 30 year mortgage, you can increase your principal payment, increase your interest payment. Um, and sort of get ahead of the curve on, you know, paying down that loan. And so for me, it just makes more sense to stay at a 30 year and sort of, you know, work your way up to knocking that down than staying at a 15 year and, you know, potentially having issues with cash flow month to month. It's less of a, less of a risk, less of um, a strain on leverage. And so I think that that is how I approach things and that's how I view things. But 
Um, I just think it's interesting because there, there's no right answer because if you're capable of doing both, you know, why not save your money at that point? Um, I know you made a note of extra mortgage payments reducing your mortgage by seven years. And, and then people don't really understand that or the concept of that because you're getting ahead of curve. You're being aggressive. You're being, you know, advantageous of your situation. Absolutely. So this is something that, you know, you and I have discussed, especially when I was initially looking for properties in Chicago. Yeah. Um, what, what do you, what do you do in regards to approaching, you know, and, and finding a, a good real estate agent? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's an interesting conversation because like once you get into the search and you start getting into the meat and potatoes of this thing, you understand that a lot of real estate agents actually are not even property owners. It's, it's, it's interesting. You know, they sell, they, they spend 24 hours a day trying to sell properties, but they don't even own properties themselves. They're, they're renters. You know, and then furthermore, there's even less real estate agents that are landlords that are, you know, that are, that are doing what I'm doing now. You know, yeah. so you really have to, you really have to, I'd say it starts off with networking, right? It starts off with going to meetups. Um, it starts, and I understand with COVID, that's limited nowadays. Um, but it starts with, you know, joining these groups online, um, bigger pockets, um, you know, and, and meeting people and actually, and that's in this process, kind of interviewing the real estate agent to see what kind of experience do they have. Well, uh, you know, it's particularly with multifamily, particularly with being a landlord. Um, so there's, and even people that are in this space, they may not know, they may not know as much as you think, you know. So, and don't be afraid. Here's my thing. Like, feel free to work with somebody. And if you don't like them, um, you know, feel free to fire them, basically. Um, but I, I don't like when people work with multiple agents at the same time. I mean, that's a bit disrespectful. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so work with them, you know, test their knowledge and, you know, kind of see, see if they can provide value at the end of the day. That's what it comes down to, because otherwise they're getting a 3% commission just for, you know, writing down numbers on the paper, you know, <laughs> just, you know what I mean? Like they have to earn, they have to earn their commission, in my opinion, you know? Yeah. And so, you, you know, and, you know, obviously you, you want somebody that, I tell people nowadays, like you're honestly finding the properties and bringing them to the agent and saying, Hey, can we set up a showing to go see this? You know, a lot of times, like a friend of mine, she's interested in buying, you know, multifamily in our area too. And she was saying she's done so much research. Now she's teaching the agent, you know? And so you have to be careful with who you work with for real. He has to fire the agent. Okay. Interesting. So one of the things, you know, we've, we've talked about is a four unit and being a four unit um, owner. Uh, what's the process of buying a four unit and approaching, especially with underwriting properties? I think that's something that people don't really comprehend is the crunching of numbers is so pivotal in your decision and understanding what is that property going to bring to you? Like, what are you able to charge for rents? Yeah. What are people charging around there? Can you you know, create a down unit and flip that into an Airbnb on a month to month basis to bring in some short term income, um, amenities, putting out porch, porch material, porch furniture, putting a grill out there for your tenants to use, like approaching those kind of things and getting more, more comfortable with that. Yeah. So when I, when I do underwriting for a one to four unit property, um, what I do is I, I lay out two scenarios. One scenario is how much money will I make when I'm, if I'm living in the property? And then eventually I want to move out of the property. So I also do a scenario, how much money would I make when I move out? 
Now, for me, I have to make more than 10% cash on cash return while I'm living in the unit. Otherwise, I don't move forward with, with the property. That's a, kind of a, a hard set rule that I have. And quite frankly, it knocks out like 80% of the properties that I look at off the bat. Yeah. Right. Um, so I also, and the way I lay it out is, you know, if there are tenants there currently, right, how much are they paying? If I'm able to renovate it, right, how much can I get for rent then? You know, how much will it take for me to renovate it? So I include all these factors in my, in my Excel sheet uh, when I'm doing this underwriting process. You know, for this particular property, you know, people were paying $500 and $600 a month for a one-bedroom with utilities included. I'm like, I know in Chicago, in Logan Square, I can get $900, $1,000 a month um, without including utilities. So it's a big value add play for me. Like when, when I saw this property, I'm like, I have to move on it because these owners and it was owners, they had owned it for a long time. Uh, they're Polish and they're renting to other Polish people in their community. And, you know, they were, they, they probably paid off more, most of the mortgage and they're fine with just getting some money, you know, for the rental. Um, and then with that, you then have to assess, okay, you know, there's, there's some units that are occupant. There's some, there's some units that are, vacant like now now how do we get the occupied units if they're paying under low value rent how do we get them out and cycle in new tenants so that's all the process that's going to cost money as well you know vacancies cost you the most in real estate right not having a tenant pay rent is, is the most cost worthy thing that you can have um so then you have to plan out that process too you know, yeah. but when i'm doing the underwriting i don't go into that much detail i'd say but i definitely assess how much money am I currently getting in rent? Um, if there's like things like laundry, if there's things like parking, how much can I charge for those particular things as well? And that all has to give me a 10% cash on cash return. And when you, when you talk about amenities, um, you know, we have a little gazebo that we're going to renovate soon. Uh, we have a grill that's, it's our personal grill. So we're actually not going to provide the tenants, but tenants want to buy a grill and grill. They can do that as well. Um, but um, yeah, so we, we don't focus too much on amenities, um, to be honest with you, but it is a nice selling point to say, hey, we have a gazebo where you can go chill outside. I always, like during my tours, for people that are interested, I always mention the gazebo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I, do, I do agree with you. Um, you know, obviously, you know, working in real estate, it's something that we consider when we're selling properties to um, high, high net worth individuals and institutional clients and middle market clients. But a 10% cash on cash return is fairly consistent with the market. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, once you're dipping below that 10% cash on cash, you might run into some very identifiable liquidity issues, especially with unexpected repairs and maintenance. You might have, you know, a pipe burst or uh, a heater burst or, you know, something might happen in regards to the tenant damaging a part of your property on move out, and then you have higher than expected turnover costs. Um, and so, so for me, you know, understanding that and understanding what the market rents are versus, you know, in place actual rent is definitely something to consider. Um, I think it's interesting that the point you, you mentioned about the units that you were acquiring at, you know, 500, 600 per unit on, on rent and understanding that this is well below market. So your, your, your yield on cost, 
um, could actually get pretty significant significant based on where you could um, rent the properties at, you know, in that $900 to $1,000 range without utilities being included. Because there is some benefit of not running a, a rugs program, essentially, or, or having the, rent, the utilities being included in rent and just maximizing the amount of return. Um, so one of the things I always look at is understanding the value of having tenants in place rather than, you know, vacancies already on the property. It's very difficult for me to assess a larger purchase, you know, if there's say like, let's go even further than a four unit, but if you have a 10 unit property and you have six of those units down, you know, that's a very daunting task for you to take on your, on your own. And so you have to be able to assess, you know, yeah, this is a great opportunity to make some great, you know, returns on return on investment. But also, it's going to take me two to three months to get 95, 90 to 95% of those units leased. And so I need to be sure that I'm assessing that risk and assessing that time commitment. Because if one unit's down in a four flat, you know, you only worried about that one unit for the next four or five weeks. And high chance you'll take a 50 to $150 um, reduction on rent just to get that unit leased up for a year. Because Every month that unit's vacant, you're losing cash flow. Absolutely. Um, and, and so those are things that I, I definitely think people need to get more co- um, comfortable with. Um, you know, something we talk about a lot in real estate is loss to lease. And sometimes, you know, you're going to take a one to two percent loss to lease on your property, but a vacancy definitely outweighs the the, the negative benefit of a loss to lease on your on your property. Um, so being familiar with Chicago, you know, what are some neighborhoods right now that you're interested in or, or keeping your eye on? So yeah. Um... On the north side, I definitely say um, so. <clears throat> there's some neighborhoods that are like too exp- that are out of my out of my personal budget, right? Like I'm not getting pre-qualified for a million dollar uh, multifamily, right? This is not, yeah. you know, it's not in my budget. So as far as what's in my budget, I love like the Logan Square, Avondale. Like I said, neighborhoods just going along that blue line. Um, those are definitely neighborhoods that I'm looking at. And in the south side, I really like uh, like Chinatown, Bronzeville, like those kind of areas um, that are really. And when I think of neighborhoods, I'm thinking of both appreciation and cash flow. I try and factor those both both in. So along the blue line, for sure, in the north side and then Bronzeville and Chinatown. South side. OK, um, one of the things I consider, especially. Um, I've had this conversation, actually had this conversation last night was, you know, some people are looking at condos, especially in our age group, because they don't, they don't want to typically get into that four unit owner occupied multifamily, which is fine. I'm I'm a huge, um, I'm a huge advocate for owning their property rather than running. And that's where where I'm headed is, you know, owning my my property and then buying an investment property. So one of the things I look at right now is there's a, there's a growing fad amongst our generation of owning a one bedroom condo in Chicago. And I would like to openly say on this podcast for anyone listening, that is top 10 worst ideas you could possibly make (laughs) in Chicago real estate. There is no value to a one bedroom condo in Chicago. You're actually losing money on your investment, regardless of what you do to that unit. Because one, most people do not want to purchase a one bedroom unit um, or one bedroom condo in Chicago, because they're only going to end up paying the taxes every year and biting or taking a bite or not taking a bite but biting all of the associated costs with it in regards to the possible hoa the repairs and maintenance um anything that it goes into you know keeping this condo relevant in your local space before selling it 
Um, you're, you're, if you're going to buy a condo in Chicago, I'd highly recommend a two-bedroom, one-bath or a two-bedroom, two-bath or something with a few more um, units in it. You know, it's just it's just not feasible to, you know, resell a, a property, you know, three to four years down the line when you potentially want to move into a house with your wife, fiance, whoever. Because, and, and like Francis said, you, you're worried about appreciation. One unit condo, one bedroom condos in Chicago do not appreciate. Um, they say relatively flat year over year. So it's not really a great investment on your end to, you know, try and flip a one unit three or four years down the line. I, I generally agree with, with what you're saying hundred um, percent. The, 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 the only caveat that I'll throw in there is that if, if your if your mortgage in that one bedroom condo is the same as what it would have been to pay rent, and if you're like really locked into living in a one bedroom condo, then I see why you would do that. I, yeah. you know, I know people that pay like eighteen, nineteen hundred for a one bedroom condo. It's like okay, if you're paying that much in rent, you might as well look to buy. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, absolutely. So. But I I agree with you. Generally, I will not be purchasing a one bedroom condo in Chicago. No. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I would either. Um, I'm actually looking at two 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 bedroom two bath in the next. I, I think my time horizon right now is 18 months. I think that with my current financial situation, I think that's that's the most feasible option. Yeah. Um, one of the conversations I, I've been meaning to have with you because I've been having it with some of my um, investment friends, mm-hmm. uh, stocks stocks versus purchasing real estate. Yeah, I've been wanting um, to get to this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? So let me start by saying that I do both, right? And uh, I'm not going to say one is better than the other. I think, you know, everybody... It just depends on your situation and what you're willing, what you're willing to do and what you're looking to do. But I will say that, for example, we'll take this, take this building, right? Uh, down payment closing cost was about $30,000, right? Um, in a year and a half, right, we've built $60,000 worth of equity, right? So with just on equity alone, I'm not talking about cash flow. I'm not talking about savings um, from like basically depreciation, so not paying taxes, right? I'm not talking about all the other benefits of real estate. I'm just talking about equity alone. We have doubled our money in less than two years. Um, so if you double your money in the stock market in less than two years, and you can and you can go go into that stock within with confidence and saying, yeah, I know I'm going to double my money, then yeah. you know something that I don't know. Hey, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, like, yeah. then you should be. They should make a movie about you. You know, <laughs> like I don't, I don't know. I, I get your opinion on it, but like when I look at all the benefits of investing in real estate, like the said, like the property in Maryland, right? I'm able to write off eight to ten thousand dollars every year on depreciation alone. Yeah. Right. And let's say I have a bad year, I don't make money. I write that off. And that affects my personal income tax. You know, so now instead of paying whatever a case may be, like four, five, six thousand dollars taxes, now I'm getting a check from the government, you know, and you can't do that with stock. And then yeah. the, the other thing too is I mentioned the sixty thousand dollars. That's not a made up number. We we had an appraiser come out 
and reappraise our property. And they we yeah. ran that went up, right? So I can actually tap into that equity now. Like I can borrow against that equity. Like if you make uh, if you make money in the stock market, the only way to get it, from my knowledge, is to sell your stock. And th- that yes. that may not be a good idea at the time because you're like, okay, this stock is probably going to go up in value, so you want, you don't want to sell now. But I can borrow against that equity, which I'm going to do this year. I'm going to borrow against that equity. I can use that to buy stock. I can do that. I'm actually going to use it to buy another piece of real estate. You know, so to me that. that what you can do with real estate, you know, now I have two LLCs, right? That run my company, right? Now I can get business credit, right? I, I don't know that I can do that with stock, right? So to me, there's just so many more benefits with real estate. And like I said, I do both. And, you know, we spoke about this before. I'm a big proponent of 401k investing. Um, so when you, when, you, when you add my 401k, I have more money in the stock market than I do in real estate. Um, but where I try and get my bread and butter is in, is in real estate. Wait, repeat that last part. You have more money in the stock market than you do in real estate. I, correct. If you, if you include my 401k, you include my 401k. I have more money in the stock market, but in my 401k, I'm doing like Vanguard investments, you know, super, super safe. I'm not looking for huge returns. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing five, six, 8%, I'm happy with that in my with my 401k you know and then i have like play money i'd call it that's in you know that that i do to buy companies just so i can follow them and say oh i did 20 percent on it but it's not really that much money you know so i i definitely do i definitely do both i definitely do both um but there's so many benefits in real estate that if i had to choose i would say real estate no, I, I completely, I completely understand. I go back and forth on this topic all the time, especially talking to some of the guys I work with. Um, I had a conversation with one of my directors who actually told me, you know, one of the the things you touched on very briefly that very much incentivizes smart investors. And I, I, I highlight the word smart investors because it's not a train of thinking that everyone utilizes. But building equity in your property is invaluable. Um, And so one of the things that he and a lot of the other people he is in the same circles with refinanced this past cycle in the last year um, and took out some of the equity in their properties. And they're actually rolling that into new investments. Absolutely. Um, And and I think that a lot of people don't quite understand or grasp what that means. But he essentially broke it down to me in, in the sense that a lot of the people he interacts with never actually fully pay down the debt on their properties. Mm. Um, and so what they're constantly doing is building up equity, building up equity in these these properties that they own. And then they're refinancing, putting fresh debt on the properties. And you're essentially getting a tax-free money payment from your bank or from whoever refinanced on your property because, yes, you paid the down, the mortgages you paid, whatever. Um, on on that property, but you built equity. And so now the bank is giving you back what you paid and it's tax-free and you now have the, the potential to roll that into a new investment property and, and increase your cash flows or take that money and put $50,000 in the stock market or you know, take that money and invest into a, a, a fund where you know local investors are buying even bigger units or bigger properties. Um, and so it, it's something that I, I didn't really 
realize how it was utilized, but it was it's 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 definitely something that more and more people should get familiar with and, and understand that you know that equity in your property could you know launch you into a more f- favorable financial position. You know, like you said, you built sixty sixty thousand dollars of equity into your property. That's now sixty thousand dollars that you can tap into and use towards more investments. You didn't have that, and you and like you said, you might not have gotten anywhere near that, and likely you won't get anywhere near that with an investment in the stock market. You know, someone the other day said it was actually today. Uh, it was Pompliano's little brother. I forget what his first name is, um, and he said, you know, it, ten years ago, if you had bought a Tesla, I forget what version of the Tesla it was, it was worth seventy-seven thousand um, dollars, and and today it's worth forty thousand dollars. And he said, if you had taken that seventy-seven thousand dollars and invested it in Tesla stock, it would now be worth seven million dollars. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often, but that's possible. With real estate, your chances of getting that equity up is a lot more accessible than it is with stocks. And so I I definitely think you have um, the right opinion in regards to doing both. And that's kind of what I'm approaching as I've gotten in more and more of these conversations is there's no right answer. There's two different ways of doing so. Yeah. And I will say this, like I bought Tesla 10 years ago, but guess what? I doubled my money and I sold it. Like, like. I literally, I was, I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk. I read the biography. Like, I loved Tesla stock 10 years ago. And like, it was like, okay. Like, it was so volatile. One, one minute, the stock price is $108. The next is $240. The next is $150. I'm literally watching these huge movements within the stock price. I'm like, man, like, this is giving, this is like giving me anxiety. So I got to a point where I doubled my money and I sold it. Right. Again, it wasn't a lot of money. It was probably like two or three grand. But like you said, had I kept that two or three grand for 10 years? But now it's a matter of do you have that foresight? You know, now moving forward, okay, I'm going to approach stocks differently, you know, but I I owned Tesla 10 years ago, you know. Yeah. But I don't know. The stock market, I'm I'm not going to say it's uh, gambling, but it's like, you know, do you like, and I understand there's a lot that goes into assessing whether uh, a you know, a company is a, a good purchase or not. And it's people that I paid a lot of money to do that. I get all of that, you know, but for me, you know, it's, I, I'm not on that level of education. So I assess whether the company I think is a viable company, yes or no, boom. And then I just go off intuition, but I, I own Tesla back then, you know. Okay. Awesome. So last few questions before we go. Yeah. Um, What's a factor in when choosing a multifamily and then managing an Airbnb business while doing so? Yeah. Oh, man. So the Airbnb business, that's really, uh, it's, it's really an interesting business. It really is. Um, it works in, in certain markets better than other markets. Uh, in Chicago, it's tough because people are not really trying to come to Chicago in December or January. Right. So like what I noticed is that there's a there's a dip in interest during the colder months here in, in, in Chicago. Like there's all star weekend and there's a couple weekends where there's events going on to where that would drive interest. Um, but generally speaking, um, your bookings are going to be lower in the winter in Chicago and in the summer. I mean, in the summer, they're going to be higher. Um, and so with that being said, location is so important here in Chicago. Like if you're close to Wrigley, if you're close to, you know, I won't even say the United Center. That's not really a hot market, but if if you're, no. yeah, if, <laughs> but if you're close to if you're close to venue, 
like big venues during the summer, then you can make a lot of money with Airbnb. Now, what people are doing as far as an Airbnb business goes is that you don't even have to own that property. What you do is you go to a landlord and say, they list their pro- let's say they list their property for $600 a month. You say, hey, landlord, I'm going to pay you $1,800 a month. A landlord's like, oh, that's great. But you tell them, what, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to live there, but I'm going to, I'm going to rent, rent it as an Airbnb. I'm going to manage the Airbnb. So with that, you buy furniture, you buy automatic locks. So you have to make, with Airbnb, you have to make in your check-in process as flawless. Like you can get a bad review. And this is why I'm getting out of the Airbnb business because I'm realizing that people are ungrateful, right? <laughs> like, for real, like, like you, you, are, you are offering them a place to stay that's cheaper than a hotel and probably has a kitchen to where they can cook and do other things that they may not even be able to do in a hotel. But for the smallest of things, they'll give you a bad review, right? So it's like, in the same way that like, an Uber has to be absolutely terrible for me to give them less than a five star. You know, like if, if the music is too high, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll stay uncomfortable and give them a five-star rating. Like, because, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, because it's a service that they're providing. Most times it's their own car. So I'm just grateful that I'm able to benefit from that service. Right. But anyways, so p- people are very typically ungrateful uh, and you find yourself like pleading for five-star reviews because if you're over, if you average more than 4.8 stars out of five, uh, then you become a super host. And when you become a super host, you get way more traffic to your Airbnb than a regular host, right? Yeah. So it's so important to keep that rating. The same system works with uh, Lyft and Uber. Uh, but anyways, so there's multiple ways to get into the Airbnb business. You don't necessarily have to own the property. Um, and there's key things that you want to do within your business, like, um, like I said, automatic locks, um, provide parking if you can. Uh, i say those are probably... Uh, pots and pans people like like quest that um, i spend money on soaps and linen i want to make sure that when people sleep they're comfortable um, and that when they are bathing that they have good quality soap shampoo um so yeah so it's you know if you do want to go the route of doing airbnb business and not like owning a property it probably cost you about let's say between five to seven thousand dollars to get set up um, and then I always recommend, um, professional photos at pay the $200 for a professional photographer to come in and take professional photos that, you know, that, that, that'll make your listing more attractive, um, and kind of go from there. I cannot tell you how important it is to invest in photography. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it is just absolutely unreal looking at some places use their iPhone 11 and trying to yeah. sell us on these properties. Some people are really good at it. Like I, I won't hold you, you know, if you're really good at it, sure. But the, the average person off the street, isn't going to be great at taking photos off their iPhone 11. Um, just pay the $200. It's $200 in face of, you know, a much larger investment in your property. And I look at things on a return on investment standard anyway. So if $200 turns into um, a more cons- consistent basis for bookings on Airbnb, I'll get that, bu- that money back in a week, a week and a half of, you know, just getting five or six, six rentals. Um, and so people just need to be more conscious of their time and conscious of their investments. I definitely think that you're right in, in regards to, to the rating system. Um, I actually, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going on vacation this week. I'm leaving Wednesday. 
And I booked an Airbnb with a super host, you know, similar to what you said, they're very visible on the, on the website. And he contacted me and he's like, I see this, this rating or this, uh, this feedback you got at a previous Airbnb. And I was confused as to what it was, what was going on because it's from years ago. And he's like, I don't want to, you know, give you the wrong impression. Like this isn't a party area, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, people can still see this. Like they'll still, you know, deny you access to their property based on this. And it goes both ways in regards to, you know, renter versus rentee. Um, and so it, it's just, it was one of those conversations I had with them. I was like, Oh, this is like three years ago. This yeah. is a birthday party. You know, this isn't the normal trip that I take with, you know, my Airbnb account, but you know, it's one of those things as an Airbnb business owner, you know, that affects you greatly because it does affect your bottom line. You have to be on top of those things and address any feedback you receive from um, Airbnb clients. And so, so it's all, all a moving target and, and it takes a lot of, you know, management and decision making yeah absolutely yeah i i would do, if i was a, if i was running an airbnb and i saw somebody with a bad review from a from a host i would do the same thing to be honest yeah. i would reach out and say hey i see you got a negative review like yeah i would do the same thing i would do the same thing absolutely yeah well i appreciate you you coming on and, and, and i was just wondering do you have any final remarks to any of the listeners or anything that they should look out for um, you know, any publications you usually keep on top of or, or things you look out for in regards to reading or news. I know we, we, we've talked about it before, but bigger pockets is a great resource on Instagram, on Instagram and social media to follow and, and keep on top of. Yeah, no question. So bigger pockets for sure. Um, I do, I do want to deviate a little bit and just say that, um, a lot of people think that you need 20% down to buy, buy a home. Um, and as we touched on during this podcast, that's not true. Um, with FHA, you can buy a home with three and a half percent down plus closing costs. So closing costs can be anywhere from three to five percent, depending on your lender and yeah. the area that you live. Um, and there's also programs. Um, there's a program called NACA NACA um, that you know, based on your income, um, you can qualify to actually be given all the money for your down payment. Um, but that comes with strings attached in the sense that you have to live in that property for five years. Um, but they basically walk you through home ownership um, and they they hook you up with an agent and a, and a lender to work with. Um, so with that being said, there's home ownership programs available that help toward first time homeowners that help towards buying real estate. Let's say you don't have the $20,000, $40,000 that you need to get it done. Um, as far as publications and, um, different, so yeah, there's, I follow a lot of, I mean, you have to be careful who you follow on, on, <laughs> on social media because not all their information is accurate. Um, but, uh, definitely if you want to follow somebody that talks about real estate all the time, you can follow me at DMV living. Um, I give the raw and uncut truth about my situation, um, uh, and how that benefits me. But yeah, definitely bigger pockets is, is a, definitely a place to start there that, um, if you want, you know, they have a pro membership, um, but you don't even need that. Like just, just getting the regular membership and uh, participating in conversations that people have about real estate. Um, there, I recommend their books. They have, you know, three books, um, like how to put zero to no money down to buy a property. Um, they have a property management book as well. Uh, so, and they're only like 20 bucks or 30 bucks and like, and their podcasts are really good too. 
so yeah, that, we just spent the, did a huge plug for bigger pockets, but that's definitely where, where I got started and how I learned what gave me like a foundation, um, for where yeah. I am today for sure. Awesome. All right. I appreciate you coming on today and I, I look forward to getting some feedback from when this podcast posts, but, uh, have a great weekend. And to my listeners, listeners, uh, remember to remain authentic this week. Thank you guys. Thank you.